You know, probably, I'm pretty sure it is, my worst ever parenting story, I got a lot of them, occurred when my oldest son, Matthew, who was four years old, got angry and hit his younger brother, Aaron, at two years old. Now, in our family, I don't know how you do this with your children, parents, but you don't hit anybody in our family. That's always been very, very firmly off limits. And Matthew got frustrated with Aaron and slapped him. So I'm trying to figure out as a parent, okay, what do I do? How do I, how do I teach him? How do I shape his heart? So I called him into the kitchen. And I explained to him that Jesus says to us clearly that if our right hands cause us to sin, it's better to cut them off and throw them away. <laughs> now remember, I'm, I'm parenting. So I take the electric knife sharpener out, and I plugged it in. And while I'm quoting this verse, I'm revving it up. I said, Matthew, I love you, but we need to obey our Lord. I need you to stick your hand. Now listen, I, I'm, all of you mothers, I already admitted this is my worst parenting. Stop with the judgment, all right? It's out. I'm, it was terrible. I said, Matthew, stick out your arm. We need to obey the Lord. I could not believe he stuck his arm out. <laughs> Listen, he's got tears flowing down his face as he's contemplating life as a four-year-old without his right hand, and he sticks it out. And I thought to myself, that's incredible obedience. That's insanely bad parenting, but that's great, that's great obedience. And as I'm studying Elijah, and as I'm Going back through 1 Kings 17, which you ought to be there. Hopefully you got your Bibles. If you didn't bring it, grab one in front of you. You're going to need it this morning. You're always going to need it. And I, start to, I started to really study this passage. And I, that, that story came to mind because this is Elijah. This is the man of God. He's my hero from the Old Testament. He is an incredible prophet. And what makes Elijah so incredible is his obedience and commitment. He's faithful in the midst of trials. Now listen, we, we can read stories of Moses and Abraham and Elijah and Ruth and Naomi and all these men and women and young people of God, and we can be enamored with their stories, yet forget something very, very important that James won't let us forget in his epistle. Listen, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Let's drive that in. Drive that into your heart for a second. You struggle, right? Don't you struggle with trusting God when the heat turns up and trials begin to occur? Don't you think Elijah struggled? He had a nature like ours. And while Scripture might not feel all the blanks and colorize all of Elijah's life. Listen, if James says he has a nature like ours, then at least one of the things James is saying is that Elijah knows what it's like to struggle. We're going to read that pretty soon in the series. And the other part of that is that if Elijah can remain obedient serving Yahweh, we can remain obedient who have the Spirit of God in us to help us do that very thing. Often, somebody will tell me, Pastor Tim, I just couldn't do it. 
I couldn't do what I know God was saying for me to do. And my response is always the same. Yes, you can. The Spirit of God lives in you. The Word of God transforms you. And the people of God need to come around you. You can be obedient. And friends, it's important that we learn that. And it's important that we look at Elijah's life who, despite being called to a lonely... You've been lonely, right? Friends, you could be lonely sitting right in the midst of people. Despite a lonely life, he was called to loneliness where no people were for a long time. Difficult, trial-saturated life that Elijah had. Here's what Elijah did. He stepped on the altar. Not, not one of these altars. Come on, this is scrubbed clean of pain and suffering. An altar where they put the dead carcasses of animals that they're about to burn to the Lord. Figuratively, he stepped on that kind of altar and he laid down from his head to his feet right on that altar and said, God, I am yours. I am your servant. Before you, I live at servant terminology. You've got my life. And God said, you just caught my eye. Because I need people that will stand in the gap. You've got crumbling walls in this society. And Elijah, I'll take your life and I'll use it for my glory. But I'm going to have to train you. And he takes Elijah who had walked into the court of the most powerful but wicked king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Ahab. And he says to Ahab, there's not going to be rain. There's not even going to be dew for years, except at my word. And you understand that, right? God was giving Elijah the power to withhold rain and then to bring it again when he saw fit by God's leading. And then he leaves and God says to Elijah, go hide over in the east side of the Jordan by the brook Kareth. And Elijah does. And you remember the story. He drank water from the brook and God brought bread and meat morning and evening through ravens, unclean food, or unclean birds rather. And Elijah lived, and most people would say he was there for months, maybe even a year. And God's got him in training, and he's saying, okay, you stepped on my altar. I'm going to put you in that gap, but you've got to get trained, and your faith has got to get deeper, and it's got to get broader because there's going to be trials coming that your faith currently won't prepare you for. So he put him into it basic training. And what we're about to see this morning is that God moves his faithful servants from basic training into advanced training where the roots of their faith can go down even deeper into God's character of faithfulness and produce a bedrock commitment that will endure anything. You've either been in trials or you're going to be in them. You don't have an option. Friends, do you agree with me? Do you ever grow in prosperity and ease? Nobody does. We love those times, don't we? We like those seasons when things aren't very difficult, but you're not growing and I'm not growing. What makes us grow is pain, difficulty, and heat. Well, God's going to turn it up. And Elijah's about to be shaped. And what we're going to do is extract several principles from our passage. We're in 1 Kings 17. We're going to look at three verses, 7, 8, and 9. And let's draw three principles out. Here's the first one. 
God's servant must remain committed to God. Now, here's my challenge to us. It's let's take these principles and let's move them through the life of Elijah right back into our own lives for a minute. And let's say to us, God is telling me, he's telling you that we've got to remain committed to God. Remain committed to God. It's one thing to step on the altar and say, I'm all yours. It's another thing to stay there when things get difficult. Look at verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, this is so subtle. But think with me for a moment. Brooks don't dry up overnight. Right? There had been no rain in the land and the Kareth brook was affected like everything else. He's not exempt. He's not exempt from God's judgment. Either are we. We live in a, in a, in a world, we live in a country that either is currently or it will undergo God's judgment. And it'd be great if we could say that we're above the fray and that we're exempt from it. But listen, we're living in this world and when God judges the world, it sweeps Christians into its consequences as well. Can you picture that once clear flowing channel of life preserving water that's flowing by Elijah getting lower and lower day by day? Listen, you've got to understand something. He's going to die. He's going to die without water. He's in desert wilderness. The sun is beating. If there is no water and there's no other source, Elijah will die. This is his life-preserving channel of water. And when that day finally came that Elijah looks down into that rocky little trench called a wadi that runs through the east of the Jordan, when he looks down there and that day came when not even a drop of moisture was left, listen, where do we find Elijah? He's right where God told him to go. Would that be where God would find us? He didn't take matters into his own hands like Saul did. Remember when Samuel didn't show up when he told Saul he would? Saul takes matters into his own hand and profanes the worship of God, and he was judged severely for it. He doesn't take matters into his own hand. Elijah remained obedient right where God had told him to go. He stayed right where God had told him to be even after, even when the brook had dried. See, he was learning that a servant of God must stay on the altar even when things look bleak, even when clouds cover the sky and when hope is dimmed. And that could be very difficult, friends, can't it? Let me give you some examples. You took that job that you felt God leading you to and all of a sudden you're laid off. Your brook has dried up. You loved that job. God, where are you? That health that you enjoyed last year seems a distant memory to all the physical problems of this year. You know, you walk down that aisle full of love and dreams, and now you get up every morning just to endure another day in an unloving marriage, and all the while the brook is getting lower and lower and lower. You settle down in that church that you feel that God had led you to, 
doesn't really seem the church you thought it was. Parents, you understand that joy that you have when you hold your newborn baby. How about 16, 18 years later when they're wayward, they're away from God? And that brook is drying up more and more. You've got to understand you may be relating more to Elijah's circumstances than you ever thought possible. And Elijah is next to this brook. His life-preserving water is gone, and yet he stays right where God had told them to go, and brooks dry. And when they do, God has you in training, and the question becomes, will you stay on the altar? Will you remain steadfast? Will you be obedient to God, or will you look for your own escape? You know, George Mueller was a committed servant of God. He lived in the 1800s. I'm reading on vacation his autobiography. It's amazing. In 1837, his ministry, listen to the scope of his ministry. He had handed out 4,030 copies of the Bible. He had begun day schools for 353 children. I mean, imagine that. He's only a few years into his ministry. He had begun a missionary work in the East Indies, Canada, and Europe. He started the Scripture Knowledge Institution. He had opened up orphanages. He was pastoring a church. All, all of this with chronically poor health. They kept repeatedly sending him out to the country to try to recover. His health was so bad. And not once did he ever ask any person ever for money. Never. He trusted that God knew all that they needed and he would and he could provide for them. And God did time after time, generously and faithfully. But in 1938, the brook began to dry up. Let me give you some excerpts from his journal, his diary. July 12th, he wrote, the funds are now reduced to about 20 pounds. All right, you Jane Austen fans. 20 pounds. Well, one pound in 1840 is equivalent to, in 1988, $57 of U.S. money. And he had 20 pounds, which is roughly $1,140. And for, for all of that scope of ministry, that's all the money he had. Can I give you maybe a little bit of context? We've got about $1.8 in our bank, thank God. What would we do if we've had 20000 in the bank? George Mueller would say, God is as faithful with 20 pounds as he is with 120. Do you have the faith to trust him? He goes on in his journal, he writes, God has never at any time from the beginning of the work allowed us to distrust him. Nevertheless, real faith is manifested by prayer and pray he did. But the brook continued to dry up August 31st. Now a month and a half later, he writes, that bills came due, but there was no money available to pay them. September 1st, the Lord in his wisdom, he writes, and love has not yet sent help, but I believe God will in due time. September 5th, our hour of trial continues. God gives by the day now, almost by the hour as we need it. The next day, September 6th, the account books were brought from the infant orphan house and the matron asked where the money would be advanced for housekeeping. I said to her tomorrow, although I did not have a single penny in hand. September 8th, two days later. 
My gracious Lord has not sent me help yet. Yesterday and today, I have been pleading with God, giving reasons why he would be pleased to send help. Two days later, September 10th, no money came in either Saturday or yesterday. The matter has now become a solemn crisis. Listen, but I still believe that God will help us. September 17th, the trial continues. It is now more trying to our faith each day, but I am sure that God will send help if we wait. This is Elijah. Listen, the creek for Mueller was bone dry. And yet he stayed right where God had told him to be, trusting in his God. Then all of a sudden, September 18th, and he writes, Now observe how the Lord helped us. And he gives instant after instance of what God had done to bring the funds that they so desperately needed. Is your creek dry? If it's not yet, friends, more than likely at some point in your Christian walk, it's going to be. This is advanced training. And God shapes our hearts on the sides of a dry creek when we stay obedient and committed to him. There's another principle, though. The second one is this. God's servant must learn to wait on his direction. A little bit slightly, subtly different. Look at what verse 8 says, and you've got to get the first word. Then. You heard that, right? Then the word of the Lord came to him. Then, meaning it wasn't while the creek was drying. If I were God, thank God I'm not God. If I were God, I would have sent my word to Elijah. Say, Elijah, listen, listen. The creek is about to dry. It's drying all over Palestine. You're not exempt, but listen. I'm on your side. You're my servant. You've committed to me. You're standing in the gap. Don't worry. I'm going to come. I'm going to provide for you. You don't have anything to worry about. But God does not speak to Elijah like that. When God allows tests and trials in our lives, friends, listen, there are always, always pop quizzes. He doesn't tell you when they're coming. God doesn't tell you the night before, listen, you better pray up, better get your armor on because tomorrow I'm sending a trial and tomorrow Satan's got one coming and I'm going to use it for my glory. He doesn't give you advance warning. He doesn't do that. God prepares you for that trial, but he doesn't let you know it's coming. They're pop quizzes because training comes on our master's timetable not our own. And this was a crisis. He was going to die without water. Can you imagine for a moment being Elijah? On the sides of that little bank, of that little creek, and watching it get lower and lower, and you're getting thirstier and thirstier, and finally, and you're praying. Listen, he's like us. Wouldn't you be praying, God, God, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just reminding you the water's getting lower. I mean, I know you know this, but I'm getting pretty thirsty. And God's not speaking. There's no record in Scripture from the moment that God spoke to Elijah, go hide, to the moment that we read in verse 8. There's no dialogue in between that Scripture gives us. 
And that's the silence of God. And when we go through those moments where God seems silent, friends, listen, he's preparing you. He's putting you in advanced training. And he's saying, will you trust me even when you don't have my word? Dry brooks, let's just put them the way they are. Times when the future looks bleak and the circumstances look hopeless. Dry brooks are almost always preludes to God's voice in your life. And sometimes, sometimes God will dry up a present circumstance in order to prepare you to accept a new one that he's directing you toward. Crisis, crises of faith are often opportunities to hear from God in new and deeper ways. Right now, it was silence until verse 8. Have you ever experienced the silence of God? You know, listen, it wasn't that God had gone on a trip. and It wasn't that he was out of communications. The phone lines of prayer weren't down. God wasn't mad at him for some failure. That's usually almost what we think. God's not listening. God's not speaking to me. He must be angry at me. I must have done something wrong. God doesn't work that way. Do you work that way with your parents or with your children, parents? You don't operate like that. God doesn't operate like that. He's our perfect father. When he is incommunicado, when he is silent, don't go to the first things thinking I must have screwed up in some way. Always examine your heart for sin, but assume always God is working in your heart to bring deeper faith. And some of us would say, Lord, I will trust in you if you just speak to me. And God says to us, will you trust me even when I don't? You know, it's a nearly overwhelming tendency to second-guess God when circumstances turn bleak. Listen, think about your own life. Those times that the creek was drying up, whether it was your marriage or job, maybe you're self-employed and the money's not coming in anymore, and we're in a recession and the, the, distant, the future is bleak. And when you go through things like that, all of a sudden we kick into gear. We hold out fleeces. We wait for impressions. We look frantically for open doors. We randomly at times open the Bible thinking that like a horoscope, God's going to speak magically. We wait for signs in the sky or those deep feelings of confirmation. Listen, we try to figure out God's will. Because you can't stay on the banks of a drying brook. Can you? Yet the overwhelmingly consistent biblical pattern is that you cannot figure out God's will. He must reveal it to you. And he will direct us when we need it, rarely on our timetable, usually after it is out of our control. And until he does, will we remain faithful to the last thing that God has asked us to do? He's got a plan for our lives. He's faithful to reveal his will when he chooses to do so. So here's Elijah. God said, Elijah, go, go live by the brook. And the brook dries. God's word doesn't come until after it dries. And Elijah is still there. And all of a sudden, God speaks. And we said this three weeks ago, and it's worth mentioning again. God won't give you the next step in your life until you've been obedient with the first one. 
And a lot of times we're not sensing God's direction is because we're in a holding pattern of disobedience. And he wants to make us look into our hearts and say, listen, I asked you to do this. I gave you a purpose. I've given you the gifts that allow you to be able to do what I've asked you to do. And you're not doing it faithfully. So we'll wait right here until you're ready. Elijah was learning to trust that God would direct him when it was time. And friends, listen, he's going to need to learn that lesson because there's a time coming where God was going to propel him on an even more difficult path. And that's our final principle this morning, number three. God's servant will be prepared today for tomorrow's trials. You heard that, right? Today, God is preparing you for tomorrow's trials. You know, I shared in our last message three weeks ago God's call to Denise and I to Atlanta, Georgia, where my first pastoral opportunity awaited me. Listen, that required a lot of faith. For three years, whatever people gave and memoed on their giving checks, youth pastor fund, that was my paycheck Sunday after Sunday. And we learned during that time that God is always faithful. We always had enough money to pay our bills and what we needed. We didn't always have a lot of money to get what we wanted, but we had everything we needed. Everything. You know what's interesting? That was nothing new in our lives. God had been teaching us that before he even called us to pack everything we own in a rider truck and head to Atlanta, even if you don't have a place to live and a job to work. He'd been preparing us for that. You see... When I put together our honeymoon to Cancun, Mexico, I saved and saved everything I could. And I was able to purchase the trip. But I didn't have any money left, very little left for the actual expenses on the trip. And I said to Denise, don't worry, we have a wedding, gifts are going to come in, it's not going to be a problem. But Denise says, you don't know what southern weddings are like in my church. You get hand towels, not cash. I said, no, you don't. Nobody does that. That's ridiculous. Well, we got our wedding. And after the wedding was done, we went through our gifts, hoping that there would be money there to help us to be able to go on this trip. And a total of $75 came in. I was frantic. What are we going to do? It was all checks. We're flying out at 6 a.m. the next morning from Dulles Airport. My mom, thankfully, had $75 of cash. We gave her the checks. She gave us the cash. We headed off to our honeymoon. On the flight out of Dulles in the air, we saw a couple wearing a Liberty University sweatshirt, our alma mater. And we met them. They're on their honeymoon, too. They're staying in the same resort that we were staying. And they said to us, listen, we, God has just allowed us to hook up. Can we take you out to eat? Sometime while we're there. Now listen, we didn't tell anybody, not a soul, our financial situation, but God already provided. We sat back down in our seats, having said yes heartily to that. We sat back in our seats, and there's an older couple that goes to Cancun twice a year, and they stay at the Club Med. I don't know if you know what the Club Med is. That's the high-end resort. And we, they, they said, you, you two look like you're on your honeymoon, because I'm just that romantic. And so... <laughs> And we said, we are. I said, listen, Cancun is great. You got to try this. You got to try that. And then they said, listen, we, we're staying at the Club Med. We'd love to have you over for breakfast. We're allowed to bring in guests. Would you like to do that? And we said, sure, that'd be great. Thank you, God. 
We went on one of the tours that we had bought previously to Shell Ha. It's a man-made lagoon. And while there, we met a couple named Dan and Amy. They weren't married. They were in Cancun together. And we struck up a great time with them. And they said, listen, we got to fly back Saturday. But we found this great restaurant Friday. Would you like to go with us? We'll treat you. So that'd be great. Thanks. While we're there in the restaurant, they said, listen, we're going to lose so much money exchanging pesos back to U.S. dollars. Here, just take these. It was about $100 U.S. money. God was providing. We met another couple, a fourth couple while we were there. And they said, hey, we found a great Mexican restaurant. I don't know how in Mexico. We, they got a mariachi band. We'd like to take you and Denise out there. We'll treat. Okay. That'd be great. All the while, God is, is teaching us, you don't need to worry. I'm your father. But there was one thing I had to remind God. Lord, just wanted you to know our first month's rent is due the day we get back. And I don't have the money. And it's $200. We got back. You know, ladies, that euphoria of walking across the threshold of your home as a married woman. We're walking in. We had grabbed the mail out of the mailbox. We're walking into the home. And here's, a, here's an envelope from Liberty University. And five months previously, I'd done some commission work for them. Forgot all about it. I opened it up, trembling fingers, because I had to pay our rent that day, and we didn't have the money. $200 to the penny. God is faithful. He knows exactly what you need. He knows your brook has dried up. And he's preparing you today for the trials you're going to undergo tomorrow. And we wouldn't need that faith because Georgia was very difficult. And God had prepared us for that even before we knew that he was calling us to Georgia. He is utterly, utterly faithful. The, the incredible display of God's providence was on full view with ravens swooping into the morning sunlight, landing and giving Elijah bread and meat and coming back in the evening for maybe even a year. God provided for Elijah supernaturally. And then verse 9, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now listen, you might be thinking, well, that sounds a little familiar because you're probably thinking of another prophet, almost similar words. His name was Jonah. And God in Jonah's day said to him, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and cry out, call out against it for their evil has come up before me. And Jonah says, no way, no way am I going to Nineveh. They are the bitter enemies of Israel. They are bloodthirsty. God, I don't even want your forgiveness to come to them. And Jonah grabs the nearest, fastest ship he could find and goes almost in the opposite direction as far away as he can. And you know the rest of the story. God brings his wayward prophet. This isn't Elijah. God says to Elijah, go to Sidon, and you're going to see there was no question in Elijah's mind. And some of us might think, well, why would there be? It's not Nineveh. Sidon wasn't any better of a destination. Not for a prophet of Yahweh. It was the birth nation of Queen Jezebel. You know Queen Jezebel who really was the power of Israel at the time? Bloody Queen Jezebel killing all the prophets of God. 
This is where she was born in Sidon. Her father was the king of Sidon. His name was Ethbaal, which means Baal is with you. And God comes to Elijah and says, I want you to go to Sidon and I want you to go to Zarephath. And what would you think if God asked you to do that? You know, one Jewish historian wrote that Ethbaal, the father of Jezebel, ruled the most wicked dynasty then in power. When he was 36 years old, he killed the king of Tyre and took his throne and ruled for 32 years. You've got Tyre and you've got above it, you've got Sidon, two nations now combined under Ethbaal and Phoenicia right against the Mediterranean coast. And you got Zarephath, a town that's right between the two of them. Right into the middle of Baal's stronghold. See, God is sending a message to the false god Baal. I'm going to bring my prophet right into your power. Watch what I'm going to do. It was a Gentile town. Zarephath was a town of unclean people to the Jews. It was about a hundred mile walk. And he wasn't going there. Look at the text. He wasn't going there for a weekend visit. He wasn't going there for a couple weeks. God said, I want you to go to Sidon, to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. I want you to dwell there. Elijah, I want you to live in Sidon. I want you to stay there, pack everything you own, which is nothing, and go live because you're going to be there for a while. He walks through that drought-stricken country. And if that's not bad enough, 1 Kings 18.10 tells us that King Ahab was searching everywhere for Elijah. And it wasn't for a friendly reason. Elijah is the one responsible for this nationwide drought that they were in. But friends, there's another interesting fact to note about the town of Zarephath. And now I think I'm going to be able to help us understand exactly what God was doing in Elijah's life. Do you know that Zarephath means place of refinement, smelting place? In noun form, the noun of Zarephath means crucible. It's how you melt metal and reshape it. In fact, they've archaeologically excavated Zarephath and they've found metal workings and furnaces. And Chuck Swindoll gives us a great excerpt. Chuck Swindoll worked in a metal furnace and he describes what it's like. Listen to this. He says, three to four foot bars of metal as thick as my arm were placed in the white hot blast furnaces where they were heated until the slag came to surface. Slag is useless scum that forms on the surface of molten metal. And that scum, which is all the foreign matter, it makes the metal inferior. And once the impurities were removed, the soft, extremely hot metal was formed and reshaped on huge presses as it went through the pounding of a series of hammers. And then it was heated again and dropped into vats of brine or oil. Now listen, as Swindoll writes, at that point, the hot metal screamed like an animal caught in a trap would scream as it was being altered and tempered so that it could bear the beating that it was designed to take or provide the support that it was designed to give. You see, Elijah's fully in advanced training and God had prepared him miraculously by providing him by the brook Kareth. Now he's preparing him for even deeper trials of faith. That he never even saw coming. 
Has God put you in a crucible for your faith right now? It's a funny thing when we get into trials and they begin to squeeze all of our flesh to the surface. We begin to fight in our marriage and argue. We begin to doubt God. We begin to look for escape hatches. God's never given us permission to find your own escape. He says, I will bring you a way of escape when my time is right. Will you stay in the crucible? Will you stay on the altar? And would you be obedient and committed and realize I'm preparing you today for what I'm going to put you through tomorrow to make you like Christ? That's the purpose of trials. To squeeze us into God's mold. To reshape and reform. And help us to live in a way that is powerful. Do you believe, friends, that God is utterly faithful and good and worthy of your trust? Will you stay on that altar? And commit yourself fully to Him. And when difficult days and difficult weeks, and honest, some, some of us are going through difficult months and years. God knows. He's not on a trip. He's right there with you. He may not be speaking to you now, but he will speak one day. And when he does, it will put you into a new direction of life that will shape you like Christ. Will you trust him? We're learning a lot from Elijah we got a lot more to learn because he's going to go through a crucible that about undoes him. And we'll begin to see that pretty soon. Lord, thank you so much for Elijah. Thank you, Father, for teaching us. Lord, I pray that we would stay faithful to you. Lord, as you squeeze us and as you bring and allow trials to come our way, Lord, in our nearly irresistible impulse to flee the banks of the dried up brook and to find our own help, Lord, teach us to stay right where you have asked us to be, trusting that when you choose to act and to speak, you will. But we will stay faithful to that day. And we have the faith of a George Mueller and the faith of an Elijah. And watch what you do in our hearts to make us more like Christ. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.